Monkeys and Psychopaths. What Bad People Tell Us About Good Stories by Joe Lipscomb and Nick Driver. In the American Psychiatric Association's book on personality disorders, you'll find almost 400 disorders ranging from the mildly annoying to the downright psychopathic. A light flick through will result in one self-diagnosing themselves with multiple disorders, which is a troubling issue in a society that encourages and celebrates normality. Be good, do good, and good will come to you, we're told. But a deeper look has actually shown us that personality disorders, as they're called, truly make the world go round. The concoction of versions of the disordered mind dotted throughout the business, political and social worlds is the reason behind many of the most important stories ever told. That richness of the bizarre is why the status quo is so often disregarded for the extreme. Over the course of history, we've learned so much from those seemingly without conscience. How to create mass movements, how to con a generation, how to sell wars. In all of these experiences, the press and the PR industry have both played major roles in the outcomes. Why is it that extremists can so easily charm us? And what have we learned over time? When did our relationship with truth become so strained? And why is it that a good story, even when laden with misinformation, can influence the decisions we make? My colleague and friend Nick Driver and I have been on this journey for a number of years exploring the fascinating science behind the power of stories, paralleled by an interest in truth, the absence of truth, and the minds meddlesome enough to take them to unimaginable extremes. This is Monkeys and Psychopaths. Part 1. Was Edward Bernays a psychopath? Why do facts and statistics activate just a small part of the brain while narrative cascades through the body and mind like a wild, untamed river? Bear this question in mind throughout. Why is it that in an information-loaded world, it's narrative that guides us? How did we work that out? And what are the consequences? Edward Bernays has been described as a superlative version of a psychopath, not violent, that we know of, not inherently evil, but on the scale of a man with personality disorders that allowed him to become incredibly effective in the area of mass manipulation. You might think a psychopath is dangerous and prone to behavior that's both illegal and deadly. Robert D. Hare, the godfather of psychopathy, suggested one must score 30 or above on his psychopath checklist to be clinically considered a psychopath, which is why many that we know of sit in federal prisons for murder and rape and rape and murder. But it was Dr. Kevin Dutton who surmised that in fact the scale or spectrum is far more complicated than that. That yes, once you pass a certain point on that scale, the intensity of the behaviors increase exponentially. Which is why the high end of the spectrum is usually reserved for criminals and killers. But by that same token, the lower end of the spectrum is utterly littered with people just going about their daily lives, some of whom you might know. In fact, one in four CEOs will be a psychopath. Or people like Edward Bernays. Although Bernays always described himself as a truth seeker and a propagandist of propaganda, 
He was well-versed in the ideas of manipulation, but his methods always appeared honest, or humble at least. The belief that, although propaganda won't lead to a modern-day paradise, public relations will lead to a smoothly functioning society where we are guided throughout our lives by a benign elite of rational manipulators. What Edward Bernays surmised was that the intelligent minorities could manipulate and control the uneducated majorities to move them into giving consent on things they believed would benefit them. Thus, the birth of public relations. These ideas also won him many powerful fans, such as the Nazi party leader Adolf Hitler and his chief propagandist Joseph Goebbels, who used Bernays' methods in the build-up to and during World War II. It's therefore fair to hold Bernays to account when discussing the impact of the methodologies he exudes in Propaganda, his most famous work. But it is also fair to relieve him of certain blame, just as you would Albert Einstein for his seemingly harmless voice on the development of the atomic bomb. For example, history suggests Bernays actually turned down an offer from Adolf Hitler in the 1930s to spread German propaganda across America, before a New York PR firm actually accepted the task. It is the usage of such methodologies that have caused such harm. A slick and seamless play on our biological need to follow the herd, to fit in, to be ordered. It is the disordered mind that can so effectively manipulate the ordered. And at the very core of all that sits story. And arguably, at the very core of story, sit lies. Propaganda has taken us to war. It has made us start smoking. It has made us vote for Brexit and it has led Donald Trump into the White House. And why? We are tribalistic. We're herds. And we follow herd mentality. As a species, we've always been better off in a wider group. And so, we seek that wider social acceptance, and we do this by aligning ourselves with the beliefs and truths of such a group. Real fact, real information, that might contradict those beliefs, therefore becomes very dangerous. Particularly if that information ostracizes us, from this same group. That would leave us alienated, alone, and more susceptible to harm. There is safety in numbers, and sometimes, towing the line leads to survival. This is why the idea of post-truth is troublesome. When we talk about the post-truth era, it's actually difficult to define a pre-truth or just truth era at all. Have we ever really cared about truth, or are we just seeking tribal acceptance and the confirmation of what we believe to be true? Let's break that question down. Let's look at fact versus truth. Fact is something verifiable, something which, though can be contested, will eventually show itself to be factually accurate. Truth can be shady. Truth leaves room for misinterpretation. It can be manipulated because what one believes to be true may not necessarily be what another believes to be true. Just take religion as an example. These truths that people allow to dictate their lives vary from one story to the next so wildly. But what these things do is bind us. In a tribalistic species, that's infinitely more valuable than fact, especially if that fact is going to ostracize us from our tribe. Ignorance is bliss, as the classic saying goes. Or with wisdom comes pain, so said the ancient Greeks many, many years ago. We can talk about the post-truth era, but in many aspects, we've never lived in a truth era. Truth is a gatecrasher in a society that enjoys the confirmation of its beliefs. Over the years, we've sought to keep people alive, safe and in line by telling subtle inaccuracies. Take the example of Santa Claus. 
Parents tell their children the glorious story of a fictional character that flies over the rooftops. In certain instances, children will not be blessed with his presence should they decide to misbehave. You could argue there's no harm in this lie. The intent is all positive. The parent wants the child to be well behaved and the child wants to receive a visit from Santa. This is what we call a grey lie, where both the teller and the receiver gain from the lie. You may be more familiar with a white lie, the altruistic version of a lie, where the teller loses out in some way in order to benefit the receiver. But there are more colours. A red lie is where both parties lose out in some way or another. Usually these stem from revenge or anger, knowingly trying to deceive someone because you feel injustice. But ultimately, there's no real benefit for you other than the mild, short-term satisfaction you gain. And then, the lie that perhaps PR professionals in certain areas of the media, politicians and business leaders are most familiar with. A black lie. A black lie is when the receiver loses out and the teller gains something. This is the most selfish of all lies. When we learn to propagate black lies en masse, the results can be incredibly significant. Here's a wild example from the 19th century, involving a gutsy Scotsman, some distant land, and a brilliant, depending on what way you look at it, PR campaign. As the Spanish Empire finally crumbled in the late 18th century, and the New World began opening up in the early 19th century, adventure and opulence-hungry Brits began looking for exciting new ways to spend their money and start new lives. So it was quite fitting for them that around this time, in 1821, an opportunity of a lifetime appeared in the local press to invest in land in a far-off paradise in Latin America called Poyer. The fees were alarmingly cheap, but complete with a warning that they were sure to increase if you didn't secure your place quickly enough. And with that, money started rolling in. That money was going straight to the pocket of Gregor McGregor, a young Scotsman, formerly of the British and Portuguese army, McGregor had not long before played a pivotal role in the defeat of the Spanish slightly further north of Poyet, capturing the fortress at Amelia Island in Florida, and simultaneously cementing his status as something of a cult hero. An ambitious and adventurous type, it wasn't long before he was on to the next thing. The swampy shores off the side of his boat near Nicaragua seemed like the perfect territory for just that. A man with big dreams and a big appetite for the opulent, he saw this land as the ideal place to build an empire of which he would be the ultimate ruler. What he needed now was a population and some investment. He returned to London, which was financially reveling in the post-Napoleon age, and began selling his exciting story of his future empire, of which he was the Kazikh, or the Prince of Poyet. His sales pitch was almost perfect. He told stories of friendly locals, rich fertile lands and fish-filled seas, even clear rivers laced with pieces of gold you could simply pick up as you passed. He explained that local towns with roads and trading ports had been created, and that all that was missing were educated and adventurous folks willing to go and become greatly influential characters in this new world. Within a year, McGregor had raised some £200,000, as well as a small band of eager settlers ready to leave Britain. His efforts were highly successful. McGregor managed to fill and send two ships carrying almost 250 settlers to Poyer, including bankers, doctors, and military men, with the promise of high-ranking government jobs in the capital of St. Joseph. But upon arrival, things were not as they seemed. Once the first ship had arrived at the shores of Poyer, things were oddly quiet. The celebrity welcome they were expecting in the bustling port never came. 
Settlers-to-be began scouring the detailed maps they were given in case they'd taken some kind of maritime misturn. They had not. Firstly, the port didn't exist. Neither did the town, and neither did the roads. And although locals were not documented as being aggressive, they were neither friendly nor welcoming. There wasn't even any gold in the rivers. The poyer that McGregor had described simply didn't exist. The land was inhospitable, untamed jungle. And once the Honduras packet left, the settlers slowly fell apart. Children began to die of malnutrition. One man shot himself in the head. Another man built his own canoe to try and escape, but drowned shortly after leaving. Eventually, a British ship from Honduras appeared to rescue them, but many were already ravaged by yellow fever. Of the 250 or so that made the first two trips, around 180 died. So how did a group of highly intelligent people get so swept up in a story so fake? Well, firstly, McGregor went to great lengths to sell the island. He created a flag and designed his own currency, which investors were able to buy with English pounds. He published an entire leather-bound book called Sketch of the Mosquito by Thomas Strangeways, KGC. The flag meant nothing. The money wasn't real. And Strangeways was, of course, McGregor himself. The con was extensive. So on the surface, perhaps one can see why people were duped. But beneath the surface, more neurological symptoms were at play. There's an argument to suggest McGregor truly wanted to create a metropolis in the tropics for his settlers, but it's hard not to imagine that one of his core motives was greed. Greed at any cost requires a significant lack of empathy, one of the core traits found in psychopathy. Secondly, he took full advantage of the tribal mentality we honor as humans, fear of missing out, fear of being left behind. Convince one or two and the group quickly multiplies. Again, this isn't something that someone high on the psychopath spectrum would fall victim to as they wouldn't feel the same pressures of group mentality. Thirdly, and perhaps more importantly, is our ability as humans to default to truth in the face of uncertainty. This is when, in the face of deceit, we show a bias towards truth and trust. We accept most incoming communication as honest and that allows us to progress as a society. But this also makes us vulnerable to deception, particularly when we aren't looking to be deceived. McGregor benefited from this in more ways than one. Due to his perceived heroics in the war, just one other chapter in a fairly colorful life, he became a bit of a legend to the media too, an adventurer with heart and spirit. Therefore, he managed to secure a fair amount of decent press and advertising. The Honduras packet, which led the first group of settlers to Poyer, was described as commodious and comfortable by no other than the Times. Not everyone loved him, and more critical accounts have been recorded in which his personality traits are discussed, many of which feature highly on the psychopath checklist. He was described as narcissistic, with a passion for titles, badges, and formal military regalia. For example, he created an honor system for Poyer and awarded himself with the very highest. Who would design an honor system for a country that did not exist? Ponders an article in The Economist in 2012. Well, a psychopath might. On the list of traits are a grandiose sense of self, pathological lying, superficial charm, lack of remorse or guilt, and criminal versatility. McGregor is striding up the chart. It seems almost implausible that educated people would trust McGregor enough to hand him their money and pack up their lives. But they did. Trust is a complex thing. 
but one that is crucial in every relationship. Sadly, we have little cognitive control over who we do and do not trust. So, if you've ever been duped or sold, there's no need to feel ashamed. So how does it work? Part 2. The Trust Battle Trust is, without a shadow of a doubt, the most important element in any human relationship. We're the only species that can create trusting relationships with those outside of our immediate social circles. There are two neurological idiosyncrasies that allow us to build trust in another, the theory of mind and empathy. The theory of mind is simply the ability to transport our consciousness into another, to be able to forecast their movements and actions based on the values they display and their general behavior and mannerisms. In 1998, Manchester United forwards Andy Cole and Dwight York collaborated on a defence crippling goal en route to the Champions League final. In a replay of the goal, you'll see two forwards acting almost telepathically, neither talking to the other, neither looking at the other, but fully aware of their motives, actions and intentions. They move on the notion that each of them will act accordingly with the other to produce an opening with the optimal opportunity for scoring a goal. They trusted one another's motives, intentions, and abilities to achieve the same outcome. That is the theory of mind. The second is empathy. How we discovered empathy is quite a wonderful and serendipitous story. And it involves, like any great story, monkeys and ice cream. In the early 1990s, Giacomo Rizzolati and his band of merry scientists were lodging electrodes into the brains of monkeys to track the relationship between neurons and hand movement. The experiment included recording brain activity when the monkey's hands were at rest and when their hands were grasping objects. After lunch one day, so the story goes, one of the scientists brought an ice cream cone back with him. One can assume it was just another beautiful, academic day in sunny Parma. Within the lab, the scientist began eating the ice cream in plain sight of the monkey, still sat wide to a machine. Suddenly, the machine sprang to life, and the scientist saw that the neurons that fired when the monkey was actively working in this instance, moving its arms and mouth, was still firing when it was experiencing the scientist moving his arm and mouth and enjoying the ice cream. Voila! They discovered mirror neurons, a collection of cells in the brain that create emotional simulations in our minds, lifting us from one reality and into another. And what a most powerful tool. Imagine the ability to have someone almost literally experience something without having them actually be part of the experience at all. To be able to plant emotions and feelings into the mind of a human just through demonstration. This allows for what's called narrative transportation, where a story is so well told that we are lifted from our own reality and placed into another. We create a lucid reality where things are easily mapped out as both good and bad, as can be seen in the case of those packing their bags for the fictional poyer. Empathy releases a shed ton of oxytocin into the brain, which is known to ease anxiety around others in a social situation and to increase our motivation to collaborate and cooperate. This helps us to understand the power of cultural and social behavior, how we can so easily move a large group to act in a similar fashion. This is because oxytocin also controls dopamine levels, which is the do that more chemical. That makes us feel good about collaboration. So the trust battle we constantly face is simple. Do I trust you and do you trust me? Cracking that is crucial to having people react to your commands in certain ways. Why? 
because a well-told story or a display of values in action will tell someone unconsciously whether or not you're trustworthy. Stories are values in action. Values are what we develop and carry from a very young age. We grow our character around understanding our values. When a story displays them or reflects them, we respond positively. This is how we fall in love or vote or align ourselves to groups and movements. Part three, psychopaths, psychopaths everywhere. Here's a simple story from the book, Think Like a Freak by Stephen D. Levitt and Stephen J. Dubner. A little girl called Mary goes to the beach with her mother and brother. They drive there in a red car. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. Following the telling of this story, a group of children were asked four pretty simple questions. What color was the car? Did they have fish and chips for lunch? Did they listen to music in the car? Did they drink lemonade with lunch? The first two questions are fairly easy, but the second, not so. 76% of the children answered the last two incorrectly. Why? Because they're unanswerable. There isn't enough information given to answer them accurately, but still, the kids tried. It's said that those who did are likely to be on their way towards a powerful job in politics or business or advertising. These are areas where people almost never say, I don't know. They bluff, flag, and fight their way through at all costs. Psychopathy tells us a lot about this. Those that don't fear the social fallout from being contradicted, they're not tribal. They're generally loners. Those that don't consider the consequences of being wrong, they're pathological liars, of course. Those that are not bothered what supplying simple inaccuracies and falsehoods might result in, well, they just don't care because they can't feel empathy. Like psychopaths, they can just charm their way through life, attacking your oxytocin levels while feeling nothing. And this is something we're willing to follow. The lack of vulnerability, the display of confidence. And because we follow, and because they fear no fallout, they do it again and again and again. Here's a clip of the President of the United States of America attempting to answer a question on Brexit, the UK's political exit from the European Union. Yes. And Brexit, sorry, sir, because you are going to the UK. What will be your message on Brexit? Well, Brexit is, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about Brexit over the last couple of days, and it seems to be turning a little bit differently where they're getting at least partially involved back with the uh, European Union. Uh, I have no message. It's not for me to say. I own a lot of property there. I'm going to Scotland while I wait for the meeting. I have uh, Turnberry in Scotland, which is a magical place, one of my favorite places. I'm going there for two days while I wait for the Monday meeting. Uh, but it, it's not for me to say what they should be doing in the UK. I have great friendships. My mother was born in Scotland. Uh, I have great friendships over there. We have a wonderful ambassador, Woody Johnson. And uh, he's doing it. By the way, Woody's doing a great job. But it's, it's not for me to say. I'd like to see him be able to work it out so it could go quickly, whatever they work out. Is it heartbreaking? Oh, hard Brexit, I see. I thought you said it was heartbreaking. I said, that might be going a little bit too far. Heartbreaking. Is it heartbreaking? A lot of things are heartbreaking. No, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, Brexit is Brexit. It's not like, uh, I guess when you, when you use the term hard Brexit, I assume that's what you mean. 
the people voted uh, to break it up. So I would imagine that's what they'll do. But maybe they'll take it a little bit of a different uh, route. So I don't know if that's what they voted for. I just want the people to be happy. They're great people. And I do think I have — sure, there'll be protests, because there are always protests. But I think there, hey, there were protests the night of the election both ways. But in the end, uh, we got, a, you know, 206 electoral — 306 electoral votes. And one state that, you know, is interesting, one of the states we won, Wisconsin. I didn't even realize this until fairly recently. That was the one state that Ronald Reagan didn't win when he ran the board his second time. He didn't win Wisconsin, and we won Wisconsin. So, you know, we, we, had, a, we had a great night. Uh, protests, there, there might be protests. But I believe that the people in the U.K., Scotland, Ireland, as you know, I have property in Ireland, I have property all over. I think that those people, uh, they like me a lot. And they agree with me on immigration. And I think that's why you have Brexit in the first place, because of immigration. Yes, ma'am. Though Mr. Trump demonstrates an obvious lack of knowledge or coherence on the subject, he continues to answer the question, veering off in all sorts of directions, raising points so off-topic you almost forget what the question was in the first place. This is a simple example of just how successful people portraying these behaviours can be. This can be explained by ultra-crepidarianism. This is when we randomly supply beliefs or pieces of incomplete and potentially inaccurate information we believe will benefit us directly, which has high stakes at the business and political level. Take the kids that gave answers to the unanswerable questions. They wanted to seem smart, to be better than the rest. They offered us information they couldn't validate because they felt the payoff was worth the risk. But when you start doing this with the masses, things can get ugly. Take the example of the US and UK's invasion into Iraq in 2003. We have concluded that the UK chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at that time was not a last resort. Military action in Iraq might have been necessary at some point, but in March 2003, there was no imminent threat from Saddam Hussein. The British and American governments drew conclusions on items they had limited information on in order to drive forward their own agendas. They told and sold stories littered with misinformation and mistruths in order to convince and motivate millions to back their political agendas, all fronted by a powerful propaganda campaign and some highly experienced PR professionals. The result? Millions supported the war for fictional reasons. There was hours and hours of mainstream news coverage that positively portrayed the role of US and UK forces in the Middle East. And, depending on where you source your information, up to one million direct and indirect casualties. That's right. One of the darkest chapters of US and UK relations stem from confidently told lies aimed at the masses. Chapter 4. The All-New American Hero Elizabeth Holmes is a young, blonde, Ivy League-educated, popular, driven American woman. She's the hero we've been waiting for. In 2014, Forbes estimated her net worth to be around $4.5 billion, making her the youngest self-made female billionaire. Elizabeth Holmes is also on trial for nine cases of massive fraud and two cases of conspiracy to commit fraud. Holmes could be going to prison for two decades. In 2016, 
Forbes revised its estimate of her net worth to zero. Why and how did we get here? And what role did PR and the media play? Holmes always wanted to be a billionaire. She made this statement, allegedly in all seriousness, at the tender age of nine. Wouldn't you rather be the president? One family member asked. No, the president will marry me because I'll have a billion dollars, she replied. In 2002, Holmes enrolled at Stanford in the field of chemical engineering, having already decided that her future lie in biotechnology and healthcare. A tidy link between her family's history and a steady paycheck. It was during this time she created her own startup while still a student. Not interested in a PhD, the following year, she dropped out. She wanted to make money, real money. So she founded Theranos, a biotech company that claimed to revolutionize the way we extract and analyze blood, easily, from the comfort of our homes, and on the cheap. From the get-go, Holmes was fixated on perception and status. She had a borderline suspect obsession with Apple, and particularly Steve Jobs, who at that time was bulldozing his way through Palo Alto with big tech win after big tech win, with launches such as the iMac, the iPod, and the iPhone all before 2010. Holmes even described Theranos' technology as the iPod of healthcare, and claimed it would also one day be in every home. She then quickly started snapping up Apple executives and lured in designers and engineers with their immaculate and passionate sales pitch. Within a few years, a number of prototype systems had been developed, and Holmes and Theranos were beginning to make waves throughout the industry. But inside Theranos, the story wasn't all rosy. The turnover of staff was alarming, with multiple renowned engineers and Silicon Valley veterans coming in and out with numerous concerns of Theranos' operations, its management, and its product. Meanwhile, Holmes herself was beginning to get a bit of a reputation, exaggerating financials, overhyping investor meetings, and creating communication silos inside the company. It was around this time that the Theranos board got together and made a decision to remove her as CEO of her own company, citing inexperience and youth as the main issues. They called her into the boardroom with the soon-to-be temporary CEO and the rest of the board, all Silicon Valley heavy hitters that had invested in Theranos early on. Then, something quite astonishing happened. Holmes talked the entire board out of its decision and walked out the door in the same capacity in which she had walked in. CEO of Theranos. John Carreyrou documents this interaction in his 2018 business book of the year, Bad Blood, which chronicles the entire story of Theranos. He talks of the board meeting through the eyes of the would-be CEO and seasoned Silicon Valley man, Tom Bourdine. Bourdine wasn't exactly dying to come out of retirement to run a startup in a field in which he has no expertise, so he took a neutral stance and watched as Elizabeth used just the right mix of contrition and charm to gradually win back his three board colleagues. It was an impressive performance, he thought. A much older and more experienced CEO, skilled in the art of corporate infighting, would have been hard-pressed to turn the situation around like she had. He was reminded of an old saying, when you strike at the king, you must kill him. They'd struck at the king, or rather the queen, and she had survived. Bourdine's observation bears a moment's thought. A much older and more experienced CEO would have been hard-pressed to turn the situation around like she had. Through charm and confidence, she got exactly what she wanted. After this episode, the dream to take Theranos and its blood testing system into production continued. So too did Holmes's shady business tactics. She continued to engage with major Silicon Valley experts, huge pharmaceutical companies, and mega retail organizations across America. 
journalists, upon hearing her story of the revolutionary product they were developing, began waxing lyrical about Theranos, describing it as a biotech shift akin to Apple changing the cell phone and Amazon changing the retail industry. Holmes began schmoozing with highly influential people. Oracle CEO Larry Ellison, then Vice President Joe Biden, President Bill Clinton, and media mogul Rupert Murdoch. In 2015, she and her brother, who though highly unqualified, played an important role at Theranos alongside his fraternity brothers from college, were invited to the White House. Holmes was the new face of the American dream. And then she was found out. The systems being demonstrated were a combination of prototypes that didn't work and older models that couldn't produce the results Holmes claimed they did. The technology was simply too good to be true, and Holmes knew it all along, as did her then number two exec and boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, 20 years her senior, who would turn up at the office occasionally in his black Lamborghini. The dream was sold through the magnificent storytelling and influencing abilities of one very young and determined woman. Her valuations were completely inaccurate, her designs were flawed, and her technology was unable to ever do what she claimed it could do. Her lab testing was eventually shut down, and she was forced to sell some 18.9 million personal shares. Regardless, she continued as CEO, and even requested a further set of funding. Today, Sunny Balwani and Holmes are awaiting trial, and could face upwards of 20 years in federal prison. But up until this point, she's continued to post happy photos of her life all over Instagram, as if nothing had ever happened. She duped everyone. From major media outlets, to the biggest names in Silicon Valley, to the highest levels of office, to stakeholders, employees, and more. But how? Was it truth default? Was it superficial charm? Holmes does not strike you as an obvious and outright psychopath, but the traits exhibited all land high on the spectrum. Greed, lack of realistic long-term planning, ego, superficial charm, lack of remorse or empathy, that is, for her would-be patients, employees, and stakeholders, pathological lying, Deception, manipulation, the list goes on. So, is it fair to assume that Holmes sits somewhere on the psychopathy spectrum and used many of those traits to amass billions of dollars, mass media attention, shareholder affection, and a Silicon Valley salary? And what of the role of the other storytellers in this tale, the media and her marketing team? Journalists described Holmes' explanation of her technology as comically vague. But this comically vague approach wasn't scrutinized or challenged nearly enough, which allowed her to rise through the ranks and deliver her pioneering story virtually untested. She was able to create a narrative that was unquestioned and founded on lies that were either later denied or brushed under the rug during legal discussions. The Wall Street Journal broke the story, and even then, Holmes and her legal team continued to use shady tactics to avoid giving inside information on her technology. The facts were hidden behind phrases such as trade secrets in order to, quote, protect against competitors. It just feels like you want us to give you the formula to coke in order to convince you that it doesn't contain arsenic, Holmes' legal team says in one report. Ultimately, the stakeholders and public were duped by the story because it was beneficial to their beliefs and reflected their values. It was a good story that must have come from an honest source with beneficial outcomes for millions of people and once big names started to appear on the label, the herd grew and grew. Major publications have since offered retractions from their articles, but of course, the damage has already been done. So who's to blame? Holmes was not your regular media-friendly psychopath, the axe-wielding maniac, but the psychiatric version that is far more commonly spoken of in the real world. 
fearlessness, ruthlessness, focus, impulsivity, self-confidence. She told a great story and duped her PR teams, who then gave her a blank canvas on which to paint her picture. Together, they duped the world's media, and then thousands and thousands beyond that. What does this collection of stories tell us? That there is an obvious and chilling link between the neurological nuances of how we receive and process stories and the makeup and motive of the minds that tell them. Those that are seemingly unaffected by the power of story seem often so good at delivering them. So good, in fact, that we're moved to hand over millions of dollars, pack up our lives, support world wars, vote for political power, and much, much more. And even though these stories are highly documented and stem back to the dawning of humankind, what we know is that there will be more. There will be more disordered minds with less than honest intentions. It will tell us stories riddled in mistruth and misinformation that's fed through PR officers, journalists, and propagandists. And we, the masses, will hear them and act. The only question that remains is whether we are on the side that follows or the side that resists.